The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the great communicator, Ronald Reagan. He was one of the most popular and influential presidents to ever hold the office, reigniting a national pride that rolled down from that shining city on a hill. After eight years in Washington, he left the White House and returned to California with his beloved Nancy, where his work and his legend continued. We'll hear the personal, one-on-one stories of hard work, compassion, and humor of POTUS number 40, Ronald Wilson Reagan, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Peggy Grandy was the executive assistant to President Ronald Reagan during his post-presidency years from 1989 to 99. In this role, she was the liaison between POTUS 40 and his staff, the public, and world leaders. She is the author of The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. She's also an international keynote speaker focusing on principles of leadership and excellence with corporations, nonprofits, student groups, and executive assistants. Currently, she's on the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy Board and a national board member for the Royal Commonwealth Society of the USA. Peggy, we are incredibly honored that you're joining us for this special episode of American POTUS. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure and an honor to join you. Peggy, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for doing this. You're an amazing partner in our work to establish the National Museum of American Presidents. I know we share a real fascination and appreciation for the presidency. How and when did that fascination start for you, and why do you think the study of the presidency and of the presidents is so important? Well, I'm so grateful that you are taking occasion to promote this concept of educating America and the world on the importance of the presidency. As we know, so far, there's only been 45 men to this point um, who have sat in that office and held that role. And so it is a very exclusive fraternity that someday may include a woman as well. But the interesting thing about the presidency is even though the person may rotate in or out after four years or eight years and sometimes even less, and some have actually served longer, the country endures. And so the history, the timeline of this great nation of ours is told through the lens and the story of these great men that have served our nation. But really, the story is is deeper and bigger and broader than that. And it's the story of all of us. And so we see ourselves in these snapshots of time that are reflected in each of these presidents. And what a, what a great opportunity and privilege to be able to look at each one and how they shaped America and the world and what our role is as Americans in having shaped America during their presidencies as well. For me, I don't actually remember how and when it started. I I had a grandmother who was very patriotic and we'd like to call her a flag waver back in the day. And I grew up in Southern California. None of my family besides my grandma was very politically aware or involved. We certainly weren't a donor class or politically connected, but it was just always a fascination of mine. And I can remember from the time I was a young child in my elementary school library, even going to the librarian and asking if she had any new books on the presidency or the first ladies or about government or the White House. And it just was always a hobby or a fascination of mine. And I actually never imagined that my life would intersect that world. I thought it would just be something that I would admire from afar. But it started at a very young age, and it has never left me, that that desire to be connected and to know more about that world. But you did, right out of Pepperdine, get that opportunity to work in the office of Ronald Reagan in a, in a couple of different capacities. Is that right? And then you became his executive assistant? 
Yes. So I was raised by a dad who taught me to believe that somebody's got to have the job you want and it might as well be you. (laughs) And I believed him, crazy kid that I was. And so Ronald Reagan left office at the beginning of 1989 and he returned to Los Angeles where he and Mrs. Reagan had lived before. I was a senior in college at Pepperdine University. I was a communications major, so had studied probably every speech he ever gave during his presidency and was fascinated by his communication style and and drawn to his optimism, his love for America, the contagious vision he painted for America. And so when he returned to Los Angeles, I had this crazy idea that somebody had to have a job working in his office and it might as well be me. So I took a chance and wrote a letter to the office of Ronald Reagan, never imagined I would actually even hear from them. So you can imagine my surprise standing in my dorm room one day when the phone rings and it's the office of Ronald Reagan (laughs) inviting me in for an interview. And I thought if I only had stepped foot on the floor of the president's office, it would be the most exciting day of my life. Mm -hmm. So I went for an interview with zero expectations, but a ton of enthusiasm and was surprised when not only did the interview go well, but at the end of my interview, Ronald Reagan actually walked through the lobby on his way out the door. It was shocking to me, and I was sort of starstruck. I don't know why I never imagined that Ronald Reagan might actually work in the office of Ronald Reagan and (laughs) hadn't prepared myself for what I would do if I met him face-to-face. And it's kind of embarrassing, but I wrote about it in my book, so I've had to um, you know, get over the embarrassment of it. But I didn't know what to do, and I kind of panicked. And so I thought about what I would do if the flag was passing by. So I stood up straight and put my hand over my heart and kind of stared off away from him non-threateningly, not sure what Secret Service would think of me being there, but... Typical Ronald Reagan walked right over to me, looked me in the eye, shook my hand, and it's a moment that I will never forget. That day ended. I was hired on the spot for what I thought would be a short-term internship. I worked for a few months in the office as a volunteer until I graduated from Pepperdine and then was offered a full-time staff position, serving as the executive assistant to the chief of staff and worked closely with the president and his staff for a few years in that role. And then Ronald Reagan's longtime executive assistant he had had since back in his governor days retired and they asked me to take that job. So you don't say no to a job opportunity like that, but I was six months pregnant with my first baby, wasn't quite sure how I was going to navigate that space, but wound up getting married, having three of my four children um, while I was working for President Reagan and wound up serving him from 1989 to 1999. So 10 years of his post-presidency years and what a memorable and meaningful decade of my life and a tremendous honor and opportunity to have a front row seat in history and to get to know this man personally, not just as a president. What an experience, Peggy. How did he treat his staff? How did he treat his staff as a boss? What was he like day to day as the boss of that office? Well, he completely ruined and spoiled me because I will never have a better boss. (laughs) Uh, Don't get me wrong. I worked very hard, but he was such a tremendous boss because Even though I was young and green and finding my way still in the professional world, I always felt like he gave me his trust and his loyalty, maybe even before I had earned it or deserved it. And so when you have a boss like that, you're not threatened by it or intimidated by it, but it drives you and motivates you to work really hard. And I never wanted to disappoint him or let him down or let anything fall through the cracks, not because I was afraid that he would get angry, but I just would never have wanted to disappoint him because I felt like he trusted me and that he he gave loyalty without demanding it. And so when you lead with that mindset, it it creates a tremendous sense of loyalty uh, around you. So he was a tremendous example of that. He trusted people. He delegated to his staff very well. And he just had great confidence in the people that he had surrounded himself with. So he was tremendous to work with. And, you know, all the stories that you hear about his, his charm, his wit, his storytelling, that was all true. He just had a wonderful sense of humor when things didn't always go according to plan. He was gracious and forgiving and took things in stride. And so I honestly could not have learned from or served a better boss 
than him. So not only was he this iconic world figure, but he was just a tremendous person to work for and serve as well. And that was a very busy office, many visitors coming in and out. In your wonderful book, Peggy, you talk about some of those visitors, famous and not famous. Could you share a couple of those stories with us? Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to tell the story of his post-presidency years in the pages of my book, because a lot of people think he left office, he got Alzheimer's, he passed away. And what people don't realize is there was 15 years in there during his post-presidency. And the first five in particular were very active. He did a lot of travel, made a lot of speeches, and had a steady parade of visitors. And to your point, some were very notable and memorable, and others were everyday, ordinary, patriotic Americans who wanted to come in and show their respect and thank him for the way he had impacted positively and changed their lives. And some of them grown their business and made changes that made all the difference in the world for him. So, you know, without name dropping, I'll just give you a, a, <laughs> please, a sample please name drop, Patty, of, please. of who came in <laughs> because it really, it, it was surreal. And I guess the bigger lesson I learned, not only from these people that came through, but you learned that diplomacy really comes down to relationships and post-presidency People didn't come to see President Reagan because there was a, an obligation to do so for protocol or diplomatic reasons. They came because they wanted to. They had a relationship with Ronald Reagan that had been started, some in the presidency, some even before that, that they wanted to keep and continue. And so we had people like Lady Margaret Thatcher who came in, Gorbachev world leaders from Helmut Kohl to Prime Minister Nakasone to um, Brian Mulroney, Lech Molensa, um, Mother Teresa came in. And there were several pinch me moments where I would be behind the lens of the president's camera recording these moments for history. And you almost couldn't grasp the historical significance. And to see someone like Mother Teresa, who is now revered as a saint, to see her interacting personally with Ronald Reagan, who not only was a great president, but a giant among greats. I may be a little partial, but <laughs> a, a giant among greats. And to see these two people in the flesh, in the same room, talking with each other and to realize from their unique platforms of influence, how many people they had helped and supported and served and blessed the lives of. It, it was almost too much to take in in a moment. And so history has a wonderful way of giving you the the warm perspective of, of those moments where you can take them in in greater detail even than you can in the moment because you just can't believe that this is Gorbachev walking toward me and he actually does have a big birthmark on his head and that absolutely must be him. And Margaret Thatcher, who you see in pictures, but then you hear this wonderful British accent and her witty sense of humor and how she knew how to say something very tongue in cheek under her breath and get President Reagan to royal with laughter. Um, it was just wonderful to see these very personal relationships happen and to see President Reagan enjoy these important people that he had shared the world stage with and now could enjoy from a level of friendship. Before we go any further, a quick note about you getting in touch with us here at American POTUS. We're always happy to see your comments or suggestions about this episode or any others. Just send us a note through AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And while you're there on your favorite social platform, we'd be very grateful if you spread the word about the podcast. You mentioned Gorbachev, and you recount a wonderful story in your book about trying to buy a Stetson hat for his very famous head. Could you tell us that story? <laughs> of course. Well, Gorbachev came to Los Angeles and was awarded a, a Medal of Freedom by President Reagan. And so it was this beautiful formal ceremony up at the Reagan Library. And then the next day they were going to go up to Santa Barbara to the president's ranch and enjoy some time away from the cameras and away from the pomp and circumstance of a ceremony of the day before. And so we had talked about the trip extensively and about all the details and movements of the trip. And one of the things that was always important to President Reagan was to present people with gifts. And so he decided that he wanted to give Gorbachev a Stetson cowboy hat and that that would be appropriate for him to wear on the ranch that day. And so I told him I would be happy to arrange that for him. And 
walked out of the president's office and then started going into a panic because how on earth do you figure out what size head Gorbachev has? (laughs) (laughs) And back in the day before you could Google things or email things, and now I'm making myself sound terribly old, but back in the day, we had to be very creative about how to come up with these things. And so I started by staying until 10 o'clock at night in LA to call Moscow at eight o'clock in the morning, trying to hope and pray to find somebody who spoke enough English who could understand my question um, and see if we could get Gorbachev's hat size. Well, that wasn't going too well. So I took back in the day again of faxes and drew a picture of a hat with an arrow and a question mark and pointing (laughs) to the band and faxed that off to Gorbachev's staff, trying again a different way to get this information. And eventually after trial and error, I, I finally got through to somebody and they gave me a number, which was 60 something. And that made no sense because that certainly wasn't a hat size until I realized, well, they must have Russian hat sizes. And if I can just convert those to a Western hat size, maybe then we're getting someplace. So I went to the local equestrian center, which is hard to find in LA. And I thought we had the conversion, but then the biggest problem is where do you actually find a cowboy hat in Los Angeles? (laughs) (laughs) Texas, no problem. LA, a problem. So I went to a local feed store, found on the upper shelf, this beautiful Stetson hat, different than President Reagan's in the size that I thought was Gorbachev size and purchased it in the little feed store, never, uh, never knew that that hat was about to land on Gorbachev's head. So the moment of truth came up at the ranch and Gorbachev opens the hat and laughs and smiles and goes to put it on. So here I'm very nervous because (laughs) this could go terribly wrong. It could sink too low. It could sit too high. But fortunately, Gorbachev put the hat on and it fits perfectly. So I was very proud of myself, kind of patting my industriousness on the back. And w- But my celebration was, shall we say, a little short-lived because Stetson called the next day and said, thank you so much for featuring our hat so prominently on Gorbachev's head. But do you know that he put the hat on backwards? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm a Southern California girl. I don't know these things. So I did not even know that Gorbachev had the hat on backwards. But <laughs> well, I think <laughs> we however see he pictures put it on of their visit to the <laughs> <Yeah>. ranch. But... <laughs> I thought it looked just fine, but yes, so there were some interesting job assignments that I was given during those years, and that definitely was one of them. That makes me really happy to think of Gorbachev walking around in Russia with the hat on. Maybe he's contemporaneous. <laughs> that's all backwards. Yeah, that's right. There's he's making a fashion No one in statement. Russia would know either. Right. So. Well, nobody would dare correct him, I'm sure, <laughs> but there's Boy. wonderful pictures of the two of them up at the ranch, and Ronald Reagan is driving the Jeep, and they're both wearing their cowboy hats side by side. Secret Service is in the backseat looking terribly nervous because Ronald Reagan, you know, had not driven for eight years. So I cannot (laughs) attest to his driving skills at that point. But it did make for a wonderful picture. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Reagan was famously known as the great communicator. What did he do to earn that title? What was in his playbook that made him so very successful in communicating? Not just with Americans, but with the world. He was very consistent in his communication. He was visionary. He was optimistic. He used language that inspired people, that made people feel good and feel hopeful. And he always thought about his audience and had a beautiful way of reading an audience. And so, especially if he was giving a large televised speech or something that had had really been highly prepared... Oftentimes, I would have the script of what had been loaded either into a teleprompter or that he had notes on. And inevitably, I would be following along and he would sometimes leave the script and wander off and tell a story because he had read the audience and thought that that was something that they needed to hear or would enjoy. And he would beautifully wind up exactly where he had left off and continue on. And unless you had the notes in front of you, you would never know that that was an add-on. And inevitably, that was the most quoted, most memorable part of his entire speech. So he had this beautiful way of reading an audience. And I think the secret behind his communication was he was always very audience-focused. He spent a lot of time thinking about who his audience would be and not just what he wanted to say, but what he thought they needed to hear. And the way he used language, it always was infused with 
positive words, optimistic words, visionary words, and he stuck to the drumbeat of the themes of the things that were important to him, and he did that consistently. And so when we think of Reagan, you know, we, we think of these themes of patriotism and freedom and optimism, and those were words and word pictures that he infused into everything he did. So I think that consistency, um, he, of course, always told a joke or a personal story or had something anecdotal that put people at ease. Sometimes his stories made a very poignant point, but other times they were just to, to break the ice, to get people laughing, to, um, you know, maybe take some tense air out of the room. But he just had a beautiful way of communicating and he had a way of connecting with people. So whether you were in the room with him, hearing him tell a story firsthand, or whether you were at home in your living room and we're hearing him come through the TV on one of your three channels at night um, <laughs> from the Oval Office, looking into the lens of the camera, coming into your living room. He had this beautiful way of making you feel as if he was speaking just to you. And that was very intentional. He had a way of communicating with people that, that was very personal. And even though it was sometimes a large group or even a televised speech, we all remember that feeling of feeling like he's really talking just to me. So he was always focused on his audience, not just on a point that he wanted to make. And I, I think that came through in, in the way he communicated. Peggy, let's, let's talk for a moment, switch gears just a bit and talk about Mrs. Reagan, an amazing person in her own right. And you say in your book that you were her ally. What was she like and how did you work together? She was a remarkable woman, and I don't think we would have had Ronald Reagan, uh, the person he was, without her. She was unafraid to be the bad guy so that he could be the good guy. She had an incredible intuition. She could read people and read situations. She always had his back and his best interests at heart and in mind. She and I got along really well. Um, I learned early on there were a couple of things that were very important to her. I learned that she cared about loyalty and she knew that I was ferociously loyal to her and to her husband. Um, she cared about trust and truth and she wanted to know that you would always be transparent with her and that you would tell her the truth fully. And a lot of times it was things you didn't want to necessarily share with Mrs. Reagan, but she learned early on that she could trust that I would always tell her the truth. And I learned sometimes you just had to tell her something and you didn't necessarily have to solve it or fix it. She just needed to know that you had been transparent and forthcoming with her. And so we got along really well, even in those early years. And she was a great mentor to me. She taught me so much about um, hospitality and about how to treat people and communicate with people and the art of diplomacy and hospitality, which she was so good at. I watched her entertain people in their home, entertain people at events, and just the beautiful way she conducted herself and put people at ease. Um, I, I just pictured her so often being in the White House and being such a great representation as the First Lady of the United States and how, how proud the President must have been of her in that role and what a beautiful job she did honoring our nation. So she and I got along really well and it was especially important to establish that relationship because obviously in the later years of President Reagan's life, it was more important than ever for us to be able to communicate openly and honestly and we communicated more and more in the later years. And so I was really grateful to have had that good foundation with her. But she she actually could be very funny herself. And just she loved her husband more than anything and only wanted what was best for him. Their love story was something that was so inspiring. And, you know, people always talk about that doughy-eyed look that she would give him when he was giving a speech or something. But that's actually how she looked at him all the time. We could just be in the office and she just had that adoring gaze. She truly loved him. But what I loved is he gave her that look too. And a lot of people didn't often see that, but to watch the look of delight in his eyes when she would walk into the room or when she was giving remarks and he was in the audience to watch the look of pride and love on his face was 
was really special. And the two of them could not be in a room on opposite sides without finding their way back together, almost like two parts of a magnet. They were never just standing by each other. He was always holding her hand or had his arm around her. And it was not uncommon, even in the office, to walk into one of the outer hallways and find them hugging each other or kissing each other and Secret Service kind of eyes rolled with their back to them, you know, <laughs> giving them a little bit of space. But theirs was a true, genuine, sincere love story. And Ronald Reagan was who he was because of who she was. I can tell you, Peggy, I, I believe I've told you in the past, I went to the Reagan Library not long after President Reagan had passed with Senator Baker. I worked with Senator Howard Baker at that point and Mrs. Reagan. We had dinner with her and, and she showed us around and we went to the gravesite, and there was a chair, a single chair there and Mrs. Reagan sat in it and we stood behind her for five or six minutes in silence and my heart just melted. You could tell that mm-hmm. it was a devastating loss for her to lose a man she mm-hmm. loved so deeply, but uh, a really an amazing woman. And I was actually surprised, you know, a lot of times you lose a soulmate like that and sometimes the surviving spouse does not live very long. And I was always so proud of her for the way she soldiered on to champion his legacy. It obviously gave her great drive and motivation to make sure that the story of his life was told fairly and fully. And she was fully devoted to perpetuating his life and legacy even after he was gone. And I admired her so much for that. It was never about her. It was always about him. And what a, what a beautiful tribute she gave to him with her life and the way she continued to live it even after he was gone. Peggy, you mentioned earlier that the, particularly the first five years of the post-presidency were intensely busy. What do you think President Reagan's plans were for his post-presidency? What vision did he have of what he would do, what he would accomplish? I don't know that he had great plans for that. Of course, the expectation is always that you're going to write a memoir. And of course, Mm -hmm. he did that. He definitely wanted to spend some more time at his ranch. But even though I don't think he had a lot of unfinished business, he did have a couple of things that continued to, that he continued to speak out on. And so it was interesting to see him find his voice, even in the post-presidency. He was very careful not to backseat drive, especially since George Bush, who had been his vice president for eight years, was now the president of the United States. And so he was very careful not to speak out on things that might step on the toes of his predecessor or his um, successor. He knew that unless you're seated in the Oval Office, you just don't possibly have all the information. And so it was not for him to say how George Bush should have made this decision or that decision. Um, But some of the interesting things that he spoke out about during his post-presidency were the line item veto He believed that that was something that the president should have in order to lead to a more balanced budget. At the time, there was 35 or 36 governors that had that capacity, but the president of the United States did not. And so he was an advocate for that and spoke out about that. He also spoke out against the practice of gerrymandering, and he believed it was against the will of the people to be divided up into these crazy groupings and that people had the right to live and vote in blocks of their choosing. And surprisingly enough, he spoke out against the 22nd Amendment. And even though he did not intend to run for a third term, he grew up as an FDR Democrat, and he believed that the people should have the right to vote for the person that they wanted as many times as they saw fit to vote for them. So he was always deferring to the rights and the will of the people. And so those are some of the topics that he spoke out in support of or against in his post-presidency years while still being really careful not to step on any legislation or any of the executive orders that were coming out of the White House. Let's let's take a, a broad view. Why is Reagan important? And do you think he had a sense of his importance in American and world history? I think that he just felt like he was playing the role in life that he had been given. And it was no more important than anybody else's. And that if you were fulfilling the role you had been put here on earth to do, that he was no more important than you were in fulfilling that role. I would say, if anything, he did not look back on his presidency and 
toot his own horn about things that he had accomplished or done or policy that he had pushed through. When he looked back on his eight years in the White House, the thing overwhelmingly he was most proud of is that he made the American people believe in themselves again. And so to the extent that he was perhaps the facilitator of that or the inspiration behind that, in a way, I think he just sat back with pride and looked at what the capacity of we, the American people, to innovate and to build and to expand and to explore and was so proud of what we as Americans accomplished during the 1980s when he had the privilege and the honor of being president. And he really did approach the presidency with a deep sense of humility and gratitude he was grateful for the opportunity to have served and, and never lost sight that it wasn't about him. It was about the American people. Quick little story, post-presidency, President Bush awarded him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And I got to fly with him to Washington, D.C., was there in the room when President Bush presented President Reagan with this Medal of Freedom, which, as you know, is the highest civilian award that can be bestowed. And to watch this man who had been honored so many times in so many different ways receive this honor from his former vice president, that was such a special moment. But then on the flight home, what was even more impactful is, you know, it's a long flight from Washington, D.C. back to L.A. He was in a suit, but took off his suit coat. But he left that medal on and he wore that medal all the way home. And you knew that it really meant something special to him. And to me, it was such a symbol of the fact that he never took for granted the honor and the privilege of having been able to serve as president of the United States. That was not something he took lightly. And to see him wear this medal with pride all the way home, it wasn't about him, but it was about we the people. We the people had told the government what to do, not the other way around. And he had helped get government off the backs of the people for those eight years and watched as beautiful things happened that we collectively did together. So I don't know that he had a sense of his importance in history, although history, I think, will look back at him as definitely a giant among greats. But he had a sense, I would believe, of satisfaction for having completed with excellence and honor, the honor that he had been given and, and fulfilling the role he had been put out here on earth to do. What, what do you think made him that man? What, what in his background led him to be that man with that personality, with those principles? I think he would always attribute that to his mother, to growing up in the Midwest. We think of him on the world stage, but if you know anything about his life story, he was born in 1911. His family was very poor. His father was an alcoholic. They lived in a small town where there was little to no opportunity. And if you looked at the cards of life that he had been dealt, you would have probably thought, this poor kid doesn't have a chance. But his is truly a great only in America story because he was raised by a mother who taught him to believe that God has a plan for everyone. And in the end, ultimately, everything will work out for good. And so he was raised in the midst of very dire circumstances by a mother who taught him to believe that anything was possible. And we're so grateful for his mother for instilling in him a faith, an optimism, a commitment to service and to community and creating a much larger world in his mind than he had in his circumstances. And he never allowed his circumstances to define him, but rather always define those circumstances. And if you ever talk to him later in his life about the Midwest, you would see his eyes light up and there was a twinkle in his eyes and a sparkle as he spoke about those early years, which I'm sure were incredibly difficult. But you took him out of the Midwest geographically, but the Midwest never left him. He never forgot those years and looked back on them, not as something to overcome, but really as the very foundation for everything he ultimately would become. And he create he fostered such a sense of fondness and respect for the hardworking people in the middle parts of the country that so often get overlooked by the coastal elites. And I, I think that Americans responded to that. They felt he respected them. And so they in turn gave him their respect. And I would encourage our American POTUS listeners uh, to visit 
some of those Illinois sites. He moved around, but always saw Dixon as his hometown. There's a great, the Reagan home there in, in Dixon is a great place to visit. His birthplace in Tampico, Illinois, uh, is uh, accessible too to the public. And I uh, believe me, you you can't get much smaller than Tampico, Illinois. It, it is an amazingly small little town, uh, but really gives you a Absolutely. sense of where he came from. It does. And Eureka College, which yes. he attended and played football and was student body president and was involved, I think, in everything. He, he used to say, you know, he majored in extracurricular activities. <laughs> I think he was involved in everything at Eureka College, but it's the smallest college to have graduated a president. And yet you step foot on that campus and you picture him walking those halls with gratitude for the opportunity to have attended college at all. And it, it's really a special place that still honors him in beautiful ways. Before we continue our conversation about POTUS number 40, we want to remind you how you can get in touch with us. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com or look up the American POTUS social pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Send us a note and let us know what you think of this episode or any other. Peggy, you write very poignantly about the president's battle with Alzheimer's disease, how he faced it, and how Mrs. Reagan was by his side. What did you learn about the president, Mrs. Reagan, and yourself during those difficult, very sad times? Well, a lot of people remember he left office. He announced he had Alzheimer's, and that was about five years in to his post-presidency. And in a lot of ways, the nation and the world started saying goodbye to him at that point. But I was still saying good morning to him every day for the next five years or so. And I guess he taught me that a diagnosis like that is not necessarily a a death sentence. And he taught us by his example that it was possible to continue living to the best of his ability as many days as he could and as best as he could. And he continued to come to the office and meet with people and to do the work that he was able to do. And what a great inspiration. And I really appreciated the fact that he and Mrs. Reagan made the decision to take something that was very painful and personal and could have been very private and share it with the nation and the world, knowing that it would help bring awareness and research dollars and treatments and ultimately, hopefully a cure to this terrible disease that that doesn't care whether you're the president or a just everyday citizen. It's a devastating illness. And there previously had been a lot of shame and stigma. A lot of families had suffered in isolation with this disease because there just was not much known about it. We look back and they think that actually Ronald Reagan's mother may have had Alzheimer's as well. Back in the day, it was called dementia or senility or old age. So there probably was a genetic component to it. But I appreciated the fact that he and Mrs. Reagan, as true public servants, took something that they could have gone to their ranch and hid away and nobody maybe ever would have even known. And they could have just speculated, but they took something very devastating to themselves and and led us by their consistency in moving forward with optimism. And his letter, of course, to the American people and to the world is so beautiful when he writes about the sunset years of his life. Yeah, I I remember that so clearly when the letter came out. I now begin the journey that will lead me into the sunset of my life. Can you describe that final letter and how he put those very delicate words together? I mean, that, that was all him. I mean, that was from his heart, from his pen. I obviously knew that there was something quite not right, but wasn't sure exactly what it was. And I remember holding that original letter in my hand and reading it for the first time and feeling my heart absolutely sink. And then the next day we were going to release that letter across the wire to the nation and to the world. And knowing that feeling of devastation and loss that I was already feeling and knowing that I was going to be part of a team that was going to share that devastating news with the world and knowing how hard people would take it. Because again, here was a man that people felt very personally connected to. Whether or not you ever met Ronald Reagan in person, a lot of people felt like they had a very personal, close connection to him. And I knew how devastating that news would be and how personally people would take the feelings of loss. And 
So again, back in the day, it was with the fax machine, you know, mm. you hit send on the fax and you just know that life from that moment on will never be the same for him, for Mrs. Reagan, or in many ways for the rest of the world. And it was a heartbreaking moment, but again, such a brave moment and um, such a wonderful day to, again, admire the Reagans for thinking of others before themselves. Always a focus on service with both of them. So, Peggy. And we look now how much information there is mm -hmm. about Alzheimer's and how close they're getting to a cure. And yes. that really traces back to their decision to do that and to demystify the illness, take away the shame and the stigma, and really have people focus on it for good. Mm -hmm. Now, Peggy, after your service with President Reagan, can you bring our listeners up to date on, on, on what you've been up to since then? Well, my toughest job probably came after that when I managed a very busy household of four little kids. I had four <laughs> children under the age of eight. <laughs> yeah. So if managing the president's life was busy, that probably I had met my match with that. But I just was so blessed to be able to have a family and a career at the same time. Since then, I've done a lot of speaking, both domestically, internationally, leadership training, everything from corporate CEOs, to student groups. I speak a lot to political groups and to executive assistants all around the world. Um, I've been the spokesperson for some ballot initiatives. I've wrote, written a ton of op-eds. I do a little bit of TV and radio. Um, I was the chair in the past couple of years of the, an organization called World for Brexit, which spoke out in defending democracy, both in the UK and around the world. Um, have done private consulting, obviously wrote this book and have done a lot of writing since then as well. And recently returned to government service and has taken a role uh, back as a federal employee. So that has been an exciting new professional challenge, um, which I have enjoyed once again. And I hope our listeners will, will pick up a copy of The President Will See You Now. Is there a, a website or a, how can they follow you in social media? Where can they find out more information about Peggy? Yes, I'm on every platform of social media, Twitter, <laughs> Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, the book is available, hardback, audiobook, ebook, paperback, any of the major booksellers okay. or your local you know, bookstore also as well. And I always love getting emails from people who have read the book and again, tell me their story about Ronald Reagan. So that's always a, a privilege and an honor to hear from readers who have, have engaged with the book and um, taken something away from it and share that with me. So I always enjoy that. And I do answer, <laughs> I do answer emails <laughs> and, and direct messages on social media. Well, Peggy, we like to wrap up every episode with a round of American POTUS quickfire Q&A. Are you game? All right. I'll try to keep my answers short. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> Pastor President, who do you think his favorite president would be? Or if perhaps he didn't have a favorite, which president do you think had an influence on him, good or bad? Well, he always talked about being an FDR Democrat back in the day and then obviously eventually became a Republican. And when people asked what that was about, he said, well, I didn't leave the party. The party left me. So I always thought that was interesting. I, I think he had appreciation for so many of the presidents. Calvin Coolidge was one that he definitely mentioned um, time and time again. And even though their <laughs> communication styles could not be more different, I think <laughs> fundamentally there was probably a lot that they shared. If he were around today, what would he think of the media? And would he use social media? Well, I think he would have been the king of Twitter. Um, his Twitter <laughs> account might have looked a little different than the current president. Yeah. But I believe he would have been communicating where especially young people were communicating. It was always important to him to go directly to the American people. Back in the day, he did it with his weekly radio addresses. And so I'm confident he would have been on social media. He would have been on Twitter. Would you have loved to have followed his Twitter account? Oh, he yes. was the, oh, yeah. the king <laughs> oh, of yeah. those quips and one-liners. Oh, yeah. And I don't know that he could have tweeted down the Berlin Wall, but he probably would have tried. <laughs> You know, earlier you talked about all the visitors. Other than Nancy, who was the one person he most enjoyed the company of in his post-presidency years? Who was his favorite to stop by? Well, 
I'd say there's several. I mean, he and Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher had such a wonderful relationship, and she could get him to laugh like no one else. He always enjoyed seeing George Bush when he would stop by, and really, I would say at the same time, enjoyed meeting everyday Americans and hearing their story, and whether it was kids or people that, you know, Secret Service agents that had stood post for him for years or military war heroes. It, it didn't matter. He didn't care your station in life. He really enjoyed meeting people, respected people, would look them in the eye. And for that moment, they knew they were the most important person in the world to him. And, and that was sincere. Nothing would get him to light up and get a twinkle in his eye except talking, of course, about Mrs. Reagan, but also about his mother. He had such a fondness for his mother and talked about her in wonderful terms and always had a beautiful picture of her in his office. And so she was somebody who remained very special to him even after she was gone. What do you think was his luckiest moment? He talked about not getting a job. I believe it was like at a Montgomery Ward or something (laughs) like that. And he thought his life was absolutely (laughs) over. Um, but how fortunate we are that he did not get that job because that led him yes. to leaving Dixon, Illinois and Eureka, Illinois and branching out. He wound up in, at the time it was the Tri-Cities, now I think it's the Quad Cities area and getting a job at a radio station. And that radio station eventually connected him to the, the Cubs baseball team, which brought him to Catalina Island for their spring training, which is where he did a screen <laughs> test for Hollywood and wound up in the movies and then wound up working for DE and then governor. And, you know, so it put him on this pathway that you could never have scripted even in a Hollywood script. But so not yeah. getting that job in the Midwest forced him to branch out and really gave him the foundation to launch from and forced him out of his comfort zone and thankfully onto the world stage eventually. So we have the bad HR department at the now defunct Montgomery Ward yeah. to thank for Ronald yeah. Reagan. That's great. That's great. We do. We do. Yes. <laughs> Peggy, what would you say his most impressive skill was? I would have to say storytelling, joke telling. I'm not a storyteller or joke teller. And so I always marveled at the fact that just when I thought I had heard his entire repertoire, (laughs) he would pull something out. And actually, he was pretty good at accents and like imitating people's language. And so he would not only tell stories and jokes, but sometimes would use their their speech patterns and things and was quite skilled at that and could mm. could make anyone and everybody laugh and just was a masterful storyteller and always attributed that to his dad. He said his dad, the Irishman, had the gift of Blarney. And so I think <laughs> that Reagan inherited that as well. So obviously everyone knows that he starred in several movies, but what was his favorite movie? Well, of course, he would have to say that it was Hellcats of the Navy because <laughs> back in the day, he in it with a co-star named Nancy Davis, who eventually became Nancy Reagan. But he was in one movie that got nominated for an Academy Award. It was not received, but King's Row, I think, was, uh, critics say, was his finest film. But, of course, he's known for Newt Rockney, All-American, and playing George Gift in that. So, But Hellcats of the Navy, I'm sure he loved having the opportunity to work alongside Mrs. Reagan. So what did he do for fun in the post-presidency years? He would light up when he saw on his calendar that we had given him a couple of days reprieve and we were sending him up to the ranch. <laughs> <laughs> that made him so happy. So he loved being up there riding horses, chopping wood, just being in the beautiful outdoors. He called that place his open cathedral and it was just a place where he worked really hard but somehow always wound up managing to recharge his batteries at the same time. And so I think fun for him was always getting out of LA and getting up to the ranch and just enjoying the beautiful peacefulness that was up there. Let's talk about his guilty pleasures a little bit. What was his favorite food? Not candy, but favorite food. (laughs) He was a good Midwestern boy. So if we planned a birthday meal for him, it usually involved something like meatloaf and mashed potatoes. He loved macaroni and cheese and anything chocolate. He definitely had a sweet tooth and had been known to even, if you put everything out in front of him, he might have been seen once or twice 
switching the main course and the dessert, eating the dessert first, and mm. then going to his main course. And of course, I wasn't going to tell the president he had to eat his veggies first, but <laughs> he did have a sweet tooth and did love chocolate. <laughs> the man had his priorities straight. Yeah, I, like I, I respect him absolutely. even more you now. you got to applaud that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of sweets, he's famous for loving his jelly bellies. What was his favorite jelly belly flavor? He actually loved the black licorice ones, mm. which People either love them or hate them. I was not a fan, but yeah, those yeah, were his favorite ones. And so the people at Go Leaks Candy Company, a great American company, were always generous and would send us down little boxes that the president could give to people when they came to visit of jelly beans. But they always made sure to send a special bag of only the black ones. And, you know, I tried to convince the president that the ladies in the factory would pick through the 50 flavors just to do the black ones. But I think he, he knew better. And those were the ones he liked the best. <laughs> and my final question, your favorite quote, what was your favorite quote of his? At the time, we didn't know that this was probably going to be his last public speech. But this quote is especially timeless. And I love it even more now than I did back in 1992, when at the Republican National Convention, he left us with some of his final words. And I'll quote him and he says, whatever else history may say about me when I'm gone, I hope it will record that I appeal to your best hopes, not your worst fears, to your confidence rather than your doubt. And these days we see so much of politics that appeals to our worst fears and to our doubts. And I would challenge anybody who wants to learn the lessons of Ronald Reagan and learn from the great presidents of the past that if you want to be more like Ronald Reagan, you definitely need to be somebody who appeals to the best hope and to the confidence of the people around you. And Ronald Reagan had a beautiful and inspiring way of doing that. And I feel like the luckiest woman in the world to have had an opportunity to learn directly from him. Thank you so much, Peggy. It's a perfect way to end this episode of American POTUS. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with a, a truly great man. We appreciate all your support, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about my favorite subject, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Thank you for highlighting him on your podcast. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. A friendly reminder to visit AmericanPOTUS.com and to like us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search American POTUS and we'll show up there in the search results. We'd also like to hear what you think about the episodes and any thoughts you might have for future podcasts. Finally, it's our presidential last word from POTUS number 40. Quote, the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He is the one that gets the people to do the greatest things.